Welcome to the Nauticast Podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to our episode on the third episode of season one of House of the Dragon, second of his name, which let me just say up top, hilarious title. I, I thought it was a joke at first, and I mean that as a compliment, because that's just, that's such a brutal way of undercutting this poor little blonde kid. Like immediately, second of his name. Uh, was the Game of Thrones season four had an episode that was first of his name, I believe, the one where uh, King Tommen is officially crowned? I feel like it's season four, episode oh, was five. It that? I don't recall every episode title off the top of my head, but yeah, yeah. no one should. <laughs> <laughs> but if so, yeah, that's really funny, and that's yeah, it's just such a hilarious way of capturing that kind of aspect. You see with other families in the story too, this kind of cosplay aspect of naming the kid after the famous one in your family. Mm-hmm. Like the funniest, maybe, I mean, the funniest in a very dark way being Randall Tarley naming Sam after Savage Sam Tarley, his very martial <laughs> ancestor, and then Sam being Sam. Hey, we still have a chance to get a third of his name also in this series before all is said and done, so. <laughs> that should be the last episode. That should be what it's called. Ooh, that'd should be, be great, actually. third of his name. But yeah, so this episode uh, starts off like the previous episode did with uh, a scene on the Stepstones. And we get that, that great first shot of the uh, the Valerian banner on fire. So even before you hear any dialogue, that lets you know how their little war is going. Yeah, instantly my mind jumped to Misa, the episode that followed the Red Wedding or Reigns mm. of Castamere episode. Because while it doesn't directly open with the shot of the Stark banner on fire, that is basically what the first couple minutes of footage builds towards. And it's, you know, very obvious symbolism. The house's banner is on fire. What could it possibly mean? And I, yeah, I love that right way again, like with the previous episode, we're starting with horror and we're starting with this, like this really grisly body horror, uh, crab feeder, basically crucifying that poor guy at the start of the episode. The, the horror opening kind of gives this context and shape to the politics that this is what's kind of on the fringes of and under the surface of all the more kind of polite discussions and conversation scenes back and forth is this, this horrible stuff just waiting to emerge. And then you get that, that great, incredible perverse moment when Damon shows up and starts wrecking shit and the soldier, the Valerian soldier or whoever he is being tortured at the start is, is howling for him and cheering him on and begging to be saved. And then <laughs> Craxies just comes down one, one claw on the guy. It's just, it's such a, it's such a brutal, incredible punchline for the whole scene. The tone of it just, it feels like something out of like Paul Verhoeven to me. Like that's a joke you'd see in like Robocop or Starship Troopers is the soldier begging for hope. And then Damon does, Damon does not even know you're there. Yeah, um, friend of the show, Gretchen Falker Martin had a tweet about, it's like, dude, that is basically a Kardashian on a flying Godzilla. He does not know <laughs> or care that you exist. Exactly. Yeah, it's not even that Damon's going out of his way to, to kill this guy. He just, that's, that's not even, it, it's completely irrelevant for him. Um, and that book ends so well with him shooting the messenger towards the end of the episode. The guy, the unfortunate guy who brings him the letter from Viserys, just to emphasize that even though, there are ripple effects for people other than Damon. Really, he's in this for himself. And despite his status as a war leader and a prince, this is this is an intensely uh, self-focused crusade for him and has to do with his own history and his relationship with his family members and his thoughts about his status in the world. And if you're the way of that, you're going to get stomped. And it doesn't matter if you're technically on his side, he'll stomp you just the same. I love that you have the dragon set up at the start as this this game changer. That's something we've seen before in the backstory and main story of A Song of Ice and Fire, that dragons are a force multiplier that can change the balance of power in any given combat situation. But also that they're not 
you know, all-powerful. They can be negated, they can be blunted, as they say in the episode, with a certain strategy, like just retreating into a place the dragons can't get to. Not exactly a a genius multi-part master plan, but it, it gets the job done. It, it holds off Damon and the dragon. And yeah, I think another good decision made in this opening scene, along with the wonderful just stepping on the dude, was to have it in the dark, have this be a nighttime scene, because that that helps get across Damon on the dragon's back without it looking silly, which I think Rhaenyra did look a little silly on Dragonstone in the previous episode. This gets away with it because they're shooting in the dark, so you never you never have the the obvious effect shot staring you in the face. Right. And I think the darkness also elevates those horror elements you were talking about. Obviously, just the night is more horrific. Someone once told me it's dark and full of terror, so you got that going. And... It's all—it's almost like uh, arresting the way you can see the very dark wings, uh, just like kind of outlined in the night sky. You can't really see everything that's there. All you really see is the fire coming out of Caraxes' gullet. Um, the, the dragon really gets to be a monster in this uh, scene, which because of the way the dragons are oriented around Daenerys or Rhaenyra earlier in the series, they tend to be more like those, you know, pet nuclear bombs, but they're generally on your side. But here they just get to be abject terror, maybe something closer to the bells, the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones. So that was, you know, really fun. And just like that episode, this scene is framed from the boots on the ground view. You have that guy who's tied to the peg watching it from above. Um, and only later after he's stomped into a mud pie, do we actually get a point of view shot from uh, Matt Smith or Damon's point of view. And one thing I really liked about Caraxi's visual design, or something that has been part of his visual design all throughout so far, that he has these two devil horns, which is just great visuals in the first place. But the way that it came together on screen in terms of the composition, the fire that was coming out of Caraxi's mouth, it looks like the horns were on fire too. And because you can't really see the actual eyes of the dragon, they almost look like fiery eyes themselves atop this beast um it was just very metal very cool something i'd want to see on an iron maiden album cover um exactly the kind of stuff i look for in these kind of bigger dragon set pieces and uh something that we're going to talk about quite a bit is that this is the scene that has matt smith's only lines in the entire episode um and it's basically just him saying where are you drahar where are you um, which is really funny to me because given the performance he gives in the back half of this episode, I was thinking this might be an Emmy submission for our friend Matt Smith, but I don't know if you can do that if you only deliver two lines. Right. I don't know what their their standards are, but this should count. Yeah, because, yeah, we'll get to his performance in the back half, but this opening scene sets up that frustration that is much devastation and destruction as Damon can unleash. He can't get the guy who matters most. He can't get the the victory conditions that would allow him to swagger around King's Landing like he did something, which is his ultimate goal here. And uh, yeah, and so this book ends that later scene in, in so many ways, the later extended sequence we get with Matt Smith. So much of it is set up here at the opening before we cut back to Westeros for a while. Even the emphasis on the archers on the crab feeder side, the one arrow that gets through to Pierce Damon, all the arrows they're shooting at him and his dragon and that that pays off in glorious style during his little goku run later yeah so then we we cut very very deliberate pointed cut back to westeros at a feast being held for for a little baby Aegon's name day and we, we the, the shot starts with with the meat on the table the dead pigs and then it pulls back to the two high towers watching like those two pairs are just one and the same thing and immediately you get this this kind of contrast this irony that I'll, uh, it seems like a lot of the show is going to focus on as you have the 
the the possibilities of joy and hope and the future, the next generation against this backdrop of blood, and that's where it's all going to end. I mean, even the you know the event that's bringing everyone together here, even beyond the name day celebration itself, is a hunt, is a ritual celebration of bloodletting. And you get this constant back and forth throughout this episode of of war and politics. You have the open war being fought in the Stepstones, and you have the 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 politicking. What does Viserys call it? All this this fucking politicking <laughs> going on in Westeros. But you know, as the the maxim goes, you know, war is politics by other means, and vice versa. And the the same kind of interests and same kind of power dynamics are being explored, even in in very different ways. And you can even see that in just in this early scene where what really messes with Viserys' good time, what drags him away from his baby son, is the news of war in the Stepstones. He, does, he doesn't get to ignore it. And that's represented by all the, the dead bodies and the corpses and the meat running through these, this part of the episode. That's, it's just there. It's under the surface, but it's there. Part of me wonders when exactly Viserys is open to political news, because he's in the small council chamber, he doesn't want to hear it. He's in the hunt, he doesn't want to hear it. It's like his consulting hours are every other Thursday, if you can track him <laughs> down at 3 p.m. Viserys' office hours are unavailable. <laughs> um, but I think you're exactly right that putting this scene right after what happens in the Stepstones is very deliberate. We're literally cutting from burning flesh to cooked meat. And even the prominence of the dead pigs on that lavish lunch spread uh, sticks out given how Rhaenyra rolls back at the end of the episode with a dead boar after her little Tristan with Kristen. Um, so kind of like how the Damon sequences have a nice bookend quality with the arrows and the caves and all that. Aegon's name day hunt also has those visual markers. Yeah, a lot of long, clean, dramatic through lines going on, setting up right from the start here that the the goal of the, the Hightower faction that will become the Green Party is to get Viserys to name baby Aegon as his new heir. And we see that being calculated not at first by Otto, but by his brother, which I think is nice to set up that even though Otto seems like this kind of emotionless robot puppet master character a lot of the time, and I think appropriately so, it's good to be reminded that he also faces pressures from within. And there is no one ultimate prime mover here. It's a lot of pieces always moving each other. Yeah, Hobart Hightower. I think it puts Otto's Tywin-esque performance early on into a little bit of perspective because we've been kind of led to believe he's the big cheese here or he's one of the big cheeses, but even he seems to be taking cues from his older brother. And it makes you wonder how much of like kind of Otto's plan here or his agenda has been a directive from the Hightower family overall or from Old Town itself, noting the close relationship the Hightowers have with both the Maesters and the Faith. And while Otto is a player uh he might be middle management we don't really know where that shakes out entirely and unless it's some kind of like oberon duran they're like you know the grass and the snake kind of thing working together but it definitely feels like a top-down management we kind of see it through this episode where we have hobert talking to otto and then later otto talking to allison it very much feels like there's a little bit of a top-down uh directive going on here for sure. I mean, they're playing in different arenas, but maybe the, one of the reasons Otto insists upon his own power so much in King's Landing is that he still feels at some level like he's playing uh, second fiddle to his older brother. That's the kind of thing we see in, in a lot of characters in, in the main story as well. And uh, here in this scene, we get the setup that we've had another time skip. We've had three years, which I think the show is handling really well. I think it's it's been pretty seamless. I mean, you have to accept that it's the same uh, performers, of course. But generally, they've been they've been uh, jumping over those gaps in between, I think, very effectively. And Viserys specifically brings that up with regards to the war in the Stepstones, saying it's been going on for three years, it can wait. But everyone wants him to intervene because eventually not making a choice just becomes its own choice, which is something Viserys is always having to deal with. And that um, that question of 
the legitimacy of his actions and how his actions carry the weight of a state behind it, whereas Corliss and Damon still technically feel like rogues, that would change things in the Stepstones. And the same goes with the question of who his heir is. Like, Otto can act like Egon is the heir and the gods have chosen him all he wants, but the decision is ultimately going to rest with Viserys, just like it will for the war. Now, speaking of his heir, a couple times Viserys stops Tylan Lannister's constant badgering just to ask, where the hell is Rhaenyra? Which I'm sure the script just said, whenever Rhaenyra isn't on screen, everyone should be asking, where is Rhaenyra? And <laughs> of the people in that room at the time, it seems like Alicent is the only one of the party actually interested in answering that question. Yeah, it's just like how in the, the opening of The Lord of the Rings, you know, or at least the uh, extended cut, I think it's right where Bilbo is, is yelling, where's Frodo? And he's out reading in the woods. It's a, it's a, a immediately good way to set up a protagonist with Wanderlust who's a little frustrated, who wants to be outside where they are currently. Is they're not where they're supposed to be. They're not hanging out in public and they're off, they're off by themselves. And yeah, Allison is the only one who seems to know Rhaenyra well enough to guess where she might go. And that's, yeah, it's a crucial structuring absence for that Aegon's name day scene because if everything really was going well, Rhaenyra would be here. And the fact that she's not means that everything is not settled the way Viserys really hoped it would be. And there's that great just comedy cut to her in the Godswood with her singer. And she's just forcing him to, to sing her favorites. It reminds me of one of my favorite bits in Sansa's story where she thinks back wistfully to that one time a singer came to Winterfell and she basically imprisoned him there. <laughs> and in a, in a very kind of bossy little girl kind of way and just forced him to sing her favorite songs until Ned had to be like, yeah, this is this is bordering on illegal now. <laughs> like, we need to let this guy go. And that's, yeah, that's the position Rhaenyra's in. And it's, um, you know, it's it's like she's got this fragile little bubble in the God's Wood. Also, also the way the Sansa often feels. Whereas, like, as long as that, as long as that song is playing, you know, it, she can, she can imagine that she's Nymeria and that that's her story. And then when the song is over, she has to wake up to the fact that that's not the story she's living in. Yeah. And the song being about Nymeria, which do you think... HBO is trying to let us know that there's a Nymeria uh, spinoff also coming down the line because that's like the second or third mention in as many episodes. We but, love a crossover. Uh, the song is specifically about Nymeria fleeing um, with her people. And this is basically what Rhaenyra does all episode. She flees this initial party for King Aegon in the small council chambers. She flees from Jason Lannister. Then she flees the entire hunting event after her argument with dad. Only in the end of the hunt does she actually return to the camp, which sets up her return to the small council room where uh, Viserys will reaffirm her heirdom uh, at, by, by the end of the episode. And I, I love that we have this little microcosm of the coming Green Party versus Black Party fight with Alicent and Rhaenyra in the Godswood, in which that, that random guy, that poor singer, becomes just the first of so many people to be caught between the princess and the queen, where they're both giving him different orders, and you can see the struggle on his face like beyond the question of which one he likes or which one he would instinctively support like who's who is officially in charge here where does the legitimacy of power lie which is also exactly what uh, Viserys is dealing with in terms of the question of what to do about the stepstones and even Rhaenyra is dealing with it herself when she just sarcastically says yes my queen to Alicent as if she's following orders but that's it's just like what Viserys says later in the episode he doesn't want to command Rhaenyra sure he can but that's not the relationship he wants to have. And the same thing goes for Allison. She's trying to negotiate this reality where they have a personal relationship that she wants to maintain. But her political position is just different now. And how Rhaenyra treats her is part of that. Uh, I, I love the costuming well, with these two characters in this episode. That, that scaly costume that Rhaenyra is wearing. It has a real sense of texture. And it looks 
It looks realistic. It doesn't look too chunky or something too overbearing. She might wear it. It looks breathable. It's believable she would be wearing this just casually kind of around the castle. And you have her in black. You have Alicent wearing red. Obviously, she will later be identified with the color green. But right now, she's wearing red. You know, red standing, of course, in for love and for blood. And red and black right there. That's the colors of House Targaryen. But they're split. They're fighting with each other when they should be together. Yeah. And another great visual flourish I loved was uh, Rhaenyra's hair was tied or knotted up uh, in a shape that's like three concentric circles, which is pretty much the same visual as the veneer, the Valyrian necklace Damon gave her in the first episode and is also her little sigil thing in the opening credit sequence. So um, I it's just like Rhaenyra's calling card, but I just like kind of that visual coherence that's running through all of her design. And so Alicent is here to get Rhaenyra to come along on the hunt. That's what Viserys wants her to do, join in on the, the family celebration. And partially, Rhaenyra doesn't want to come because she resents being set aside in favor of Alicent and her kids, but she also doesn't, she specifically doesn't want to go on the hunt. The violence at the heart of it, which everyone else is kind of studiously ignoring, she can't get around it. And she specifically says when they're in the carriage and they're going off to the woods that uh, that boars squeal like children when they're being slaughtered, which <laughs> is quite a bit of foreshadowing if you know where certain elements in this story are going to go. But like that's it's it's a critical line because she can't detach herself from that violence, which ties heavily into what happens uh, with her versus her father uh, with regards to the animals they encounter while out in the woods. I like the little carriage scene just for the, for the lighting of it. It was really well handled that they would be going in front of a tree and the light through the window would fade and then come back in. It wasn't ostentatious. They weren't calling attention to it, but it was a real a real nice way of just adding a sense of realism to the scene, making it not look too fake. And uh, here they're establishing, you know, they're starting bit by bit. They get Rhaenyra to say out loud what she's so mad about as we go through the episode. And here we learn a little more that she's she is feeling frustrated with her duty she's chafing against them because she feels like it's only running one direction there are things being expected of her but nothing being given to her there's no reward for her duty and she's not getting any intimacy out of this like as she said no one's here for me like i don't that's a political problem but it's also a personal one yeah uh one we may see her start remedying when she has her little fling with Mm -hmm. Kristen cole later this episode Viserys and Allison step out of the carriage to massive cheers while Rhaenyra just kind of sulks in the carriage a little bit longer. Yeah, I mean, here here we're seeing something with Rhaenyra that we see with a variety of characters in The Song of Ice and Fire, this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of no one likes me, so I'm not going to talk to anybody. And so, well, of course, therefore, they're not going to like you then. You're not going to you're not working to change anyone's opinion of you. You're just kind of confirming it. And yeah, we start to see a hint of another direction to take with Kristen Cole later in the episode. But before that, we get this this uh, beautiful scene of the party set in the tent, like the kind of endlessly enveloping huge king's tent that Rhaenyra is wandering through. It reminds me of, I was uh, re-watching one of the best episodes of, of Game of Thrones, the, the Lion and the Rose, mostly set in Joffrey's wedding. And that's a, it was a really appropriate sense of scale for that, not too uh, lavish, but enough to just kind of soak in the the size and grandeur of it all. And this reminded me of that, but even more impressive because it's all interior. Yeah, what a lavish set here. They got marble columns, a dragon rock chair for the king with the giant painting behind him. Um, and I love the giant shot of the tent from outside too with the Targaryen sigil and just standing heads and shoulders above all the other tents around it. Uh, this episode, like, felt very A Song of Ice and Fire to me in many ways. And one thing that kind of sticks out is whenever someone would enter a new camp is like, oh yeah, you can tell that's the king's uh, tent because it's the biggest and most lavish. And you get that feeling instantly from the scene. It's great. And it's it's a sense of like we've, 
it's a, a microcosm of our court. Like we've, we've reestablished the royal court just outside. So everyone can, can come together and have their little conversations and conspiracies. And a lot of this is just kind of Rhaenyra wandering around as they pepper in spare fragments of characters and world building that we're going to need later in the show. That's kind of the function of this part of the episode. One that stood out to me was, uh, was Lara Strong, Clubfoot, as he's known, uh, joining the, joining Allison's, uh, woman's circle. It's interesting because so much of the this this story pivots on gender roles and how individuals fit or don't within them, and this is one of the the moments we see where those gender lines are crossed, where a, a man joins a, a woman's council and and takes in their conversation, and it's it's specifically because he's been kicked out of the men's circle, like he's not welcome with many of the men who go hunting. It's you know his choice is to either be lonely or to fit in here. Yeah, <clears throat> what a perfect, unassuming introduction for the clubfoot. He can't perform the traditional masculine act of hunting, but he doesn't seem to begrudge that fact, nor mind spending his time with the High Ladies of Westeros. And the High Ladies of Westeros are an incredible source of gossip and news, which a clever player could leverage in the Game of Thrones. And it might even be a question where if he was a fully able-bodied, masculine man, they might not even allow him to sit in their little gossip circle. But just the way that, you know, having a disability functions in a society like this, all of a sudden he's welcome to something that he might not have been welcome to otherwise. And we also get a Joanna or Joanna Swan mention here, the Black Swan. You may remember from Fire and Blood. Uh, maybe they can cast Natalie Portman for that. <laughs> or was that Mila Kunis? Anyway, but that is a character we know lingers around through the most of the events of the dance. So, in my hopes that we get the Free Cities at some point during the series, the Swan could be a great character to return to at that point. And you can see that the women in this room are trying to make room for Rhaenyra. Like they're not shutting her out; they're trying to integrate her on their terms, but also her terms, talking about, you know, you must have some input on the war since you you supplanted Prince Damon as the heir. You're the heir, not him, even though he's out there fighting the war. We're acknowledging you as the heir. Allison pays her a compliment saying that she was more suited for it, which, yeah, definitely true. <laughs> but they're, they're trying, they're, they're, they're not acting as though uh, Rhaenyra is going to be immediately disinherited. They are at least considering it a possibility that this is someone we have to take seriously and someone whose opinion we have to make room for obviously the main star of this uh this part of the episode is the pug as everyone's been pointing out that the pug on the one lady's lap you know fitting fitting nicely into into an episode that's kind of all about animals in various ways although that pug thankfully has the easiest time of it thankfully <laughs> they're not hunting that little boy that would be over pretty quickly and the political dialogue here touches on something i was talking about earlier which is that these kind of blurring lines between war and peace and what's officially sanctioned violence and what is just people going rogue like, it, you know, they can say all they want. Like, we're not in, con in contact with Damon. We didn't order him and Corliss to go out to the Stepstones. But the fact is, those are your family members and your bannermen. We're part of that war, whether we like it or not. And that gets at, again, that Viserys' unwillingness to make a decision kind of just allows events to overtake him. And he, he can't actually stay neutral. He just ends up with less control over the position he's forced into. And I, I, something I like that they keep emphasizing is that even though these are very powerful people whose decisions affect the lives of millions, they, they themselves often feel like puppets, like they're not really in control of what's going on. Like when, when Jason Lannister uh, starts hitting on Rhaenyra and tries to kind of neg her by asking if anyone, you know, if they gave such a party for her second birthday. And she makes the great point that she doesn't remember and that Aegon's not going to remember this either because you're two. So it's not really about you. It's about what everyone can, everyone else can accomplish and perform through you. Yeah, no, that's absolutely it. It is utterly meaningless to the kids who are supposedly the centers of these events. 
another bit I really liked with Jason Lannister is that inside the tent a bit before, he was clearly eyeing Rhaenyra before he approaches her on the outside. But while he's watching her, Viserys is eyeing Jason, watching her. Once again, we are watching these characters watch each other. Then there's a certain avarice in Jason's eyes that Viserys mislikes, but he's still pretty much on board with the idea of them marrying, if for no other reason but to put that whole question of Rhaenyra's uh, betrothal to bed. And even in the outside scene, the height difference between Rhaenyra and Lord Jason is clearly uh, highlighted by the upshots. Despite being daughter of the king and heir to the throne, the men around her still look down on her and look to dominate her. This is patriarchy in effect, where even quote-unquote powerful women can be marginalized by men, even though seemingly below her in terms of station. And then, of course, Rhaenyra walks back into the tent and starts dressing down her dad, who then starts yelling at her about how she's been ignoring him about the need to get married. And it's like, it's one of those things where... Again, I have this with some characters in The Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones where I can't I can't stress to you people enough how important the pre-meeting is. Like, I don't give Tywin credit for all that much, but at least he understood, like, all right, I'm about to tell my kids they're getting married. They might freak out about this. I'm kicking everyone else out of the room first so that by the time they talk to anyone about this, they have their lines. They are composed. It seems like everyone's on board. And yeah, that is increasingly not the case for Rhaenyra and Viserys. They are hashing this out in public, which really, really is not good for either of them. Yeah, big Sonny Corleone moment here, arguing with the head of the family in front of other people. Mm -hmm. Otto, despite being a total shit, is at least right in the fact to kind of cut everything off before the argument evolves into something worse, and all the gossipers that are present can really have something to sink their teeth into. Yeah, I love how simple it is. Otto just says, your grace, and doesn't have to say anything else. It's like Viserys looks up, and they cut back to that wide shot of... Viserys and Rhaenyra looking small in the background in the context of everyone else around them, which is a great, simple little way of showing Viserys and Rhaenyra remembering that other people are in the room and going, oh, right, (laughs) this isn't just a family thing. Like, our arguments have real consequences, and they're going to be talking about our arguments and what they could mean. And, uh, yeah, of course, the substance of what Viserys is saying to Rhaenyra here is that we, despite being in charge, we exist within a context of, you know, duty and tradition, even we are not above these things. And that's a, that's the paradox of social expectations Rhaenyra gets into later, where uh, she, she talks about hating her position and Kristen's like, you know, many people in the country would be happy to be the princess and get the nice clothes and the nice food and the dragons and the Kingsguard. And Rhaenyra says they don't realize that, you know, my every move feels chosen for me and I don't, I have you know, wealth and attention, but I don't feel like I have freedom. And that's just this, this kind of bitter realization for her. I was comparing it to the, the crab bucket theory last time around, that kind of jockeying for power of too many people trapped in this, this one small space. And she's like, is that, was, was I named heir just so everyone who wants to marry me could get more out of me? So I would be more of a prize to assholes like Jason Lannister. And it's important she's having that conversation specifically with Kristen Cole, because he, at least ideally, represents the counterbalance to that. Like, he, he saves Rhaenyra from self-destruction when she looks like she's about to just, like, ride her horse into the lake. And he's like, you you changed my life. You made a huge difference for me that wouldn't have been otherwise. That's not just simple favor trading. And, you know, you can maybe change others that way. And I love the bit when she's complaining about Jason and he's like, want me to kill him? And they both laugh and it's just like, yeah, but you seriously told him to. Haha, <laughs> unless... <laughs> Yeah, I also love Kristen Cole just casually referring to a slut era. Oh, yeah, I had an adventurous youth when asked if he had any betrothals, which, <laughs> hey, good for you, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the class politics are just quickly recentered here. 
Cole is no highborn. He wouldn't have been betrothed to anyone. Rhaenyra sees that as liberating, not really realizing the actual material conditions Cole grew up in or the hierarchy his family was subject to at Blackhaven. And even as you move on up the ladder, there were still people jockeying for a higher rung. That's what's going on with Otto Hightower all through the episode. I love, I think the actor handles it really well when he's trying to present the white heart as the sign and portent because it's, you can tell how awkward it is because Otto never talks about that kind of stuff. And he's like, he's not quite good at, at, at repping that kind of mystical, magical thing. Because it's, it's so clearly, he even, he even admits at one point, like, I, I know I'm not the guy, guy who talks about this, but since it's working in my favor, I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. And it's, it's just so blatant. He's just grasping any straw he can. And they're, so, yeah, they're running after the White Heart. I love, I love the bit where they're talking about, you know, we, we found the droppings over there. And Viserys is, is like sniffing it and smelling it and handling it. Like he's, he's, he's literally handling shit. That's his day job as king now. Yeah, it's just yet another in a long line of metaphors for Viserys' rule. <laughs> they keep adding up. <laughs> and just like the model of Valyria that he has in his bedroom, Viserys isn't even doing his own tracking and hunting. People are basically just doing it all for him, and he just theoretically will get credit in the end for it. But I honestly really like this entire hunting set piece that drives 80% of this episode. It's very reminiscent of Downton Abbey to me, where they have like many little hunting trips like this, or even the more recent Secession series on HBO. Structuring entire episodes around some sort of communal event or party that allows large chunks of the cast to be present and interact with each other, also making it an ideal backdrop for introducing new characters as we see here. It lets us live in the pomp and circumstance of these highborn lives, while not refraining from showing us the extravagance, wastefulness, and class dynamics that inform these sort of public showings. It's a a very kind of bitter approach. It's a black comedy, really, because it's 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 building up a serious critique, but through uh, frivolous, kind of ridiculous things. There's the one of the best movies ever, uh, Rules of the Game, French movie from the 1930s at this hunting retreat among many different characters of many different class and background and motivations. And it's kind of, it's a farce. You're watching them all kind of chase each other romantically and have misunderstandings, but it keeps, it starts to become kind of more depressing and chilling as you go when it gets violent. And the director intended it as like, here's, here's because there it's, you know, end of the thirties building up towards world war two. And the director's like, here's the, here's the class that just doesn't see what's coming. Here's everyone who doesn't realize what we're all about to do to each other again. And, there's a the kind of the the tone really starts to flip in that movie during a hunting scene when they all go out together and they're they're chortling and they're swapping jokes and gossip and then the movie cuts to this montage of all the animals they're they're <laughs> hunting down and just it just it's a it's a really powerful moment that just brings home what's that the the cheerfulness and conviviality is the horror because of how much they're ignoring to have that kind of mood and that's starting to break down for Viserys, especially like when when Jason Lannister brings up the spear and Viserys just says it's it's quite a thing. <laughs> a compliment you give when you are out of compliments and cannot think of a single other nice word to say to any of these people. And, you know, the the symbolism there is very blunt as it will be when he uses it. This is the great big phallic public performance of power. This is what being in charge means. And Viserys is just like, uh, I don't want to. And really, Patty's doing like incredible work, even more incredible work every episode. I feel like this season so far. I just his the way he just tears into Jason Lannister with his whole mouth, just the the glee with which he's ripping him apart in that that beautifully awkward scene where Jason's trying to you know propose marriage, and Viserys is like, "Yeah, oh, is that your motivation? What if I turned it around on its head? What if I said you were stupid? What would you do then?" <laughs> yeah, no, I love this. Going back to that idea that this is a very ass waffy feeling episode in terms of the Thrones verse. 
there the way that uh, the episode kind of reinforms us about the feudal contract and the way things work in this uh, hierarchy uh, the moment here where Jason is saying everyone just assumes Aegon II will be named heir, and Viserys is like, is that what your lord's bannermen are saying? He's very much highlighting the role of a great lord or lord paramount in Westerosi society, that the Lannister banner- bannermen would go to Lord Jason with complaints, that th- that he in turn would go to the king. It's nice to get a subtle nod to that process, even if it's Viserys mostly just dunking on Jason, mostly because he just really annoyed with him. And just as the night goes on, things keep getting worse and worse for Viserys. He's just, and he's not like acting out. He's just like, he's like shriveling up. Like he's just retreating into his corner of the party. Like no one else is there. And it's, it's, there's a slow pullback at one point and everyone's like laughing and starts to get like all distorted. Like they're shrieking at each other. And it made me think of like, this is probably what it was like with the Mad King when things first started to go wrong. Like he was, as people have said, he was still charming. He could still be very eloquent and and personable one-on-one. But there were these warning signs that things were going wrong. And like, that's that's kind of what this felt like with Viserys. Yeah, Patty Considine is just so good at this. There's a very specific moment during that entire sequence you're talking about where he basically just looks at his goblet and you can just tell internally he decided, yeah, I'm just going to fucking black out tonight. Um, just incredible. And it's, it's, but it's all rooted in this like real detachment from what makes him happy, which is the relationships with the people he's close to. Like, I, as he says at one point, yeah, I don't want to, sure, I could just command Rhaenyra to get in line and, and do what it, I think it takes to make her happy, but I don't want to do that. I want her to be genuinely happy, not just appear to be happy for the sake of politics. I want to, I want to be a good father as well as a good king. And he's increasingly worried, like, that's not gonna, that's not gonna be possible. And like, <laughs> whenever, whenever Viserys has one of those moments where he's trying to be emotional and Otto Hightower just looks at him like he's an alien, cause like, that's just not Otto's consideration at all. Like, he will happily cross any personal border he needs to in the name of politics. And even though even though he's not a Targaryen, he's the one who suggests the incestuous match between the siblings because he's like, that's my ticket to power. Sure, it's, you know, uh, anathema to my faith, or at least it was publicly anathema until we decided to knuckle under and be quiet about it. But sure, if that's going to put me in charge. And it's the Targaryen ruler who reacts so negatively to that. I love Patty just has this just incredulous laugh at this point when he's just like, this is really... This is what my life is now. And it's similar to when he was uh, talking about the possibility of marrying Lena. And he, and he said, she's 12. And similarly, when Otto proposes this about Egon, Viserys just points to the kid like, he's two. <laughs> yeah, he just has this great look on his face. And it's, I think it's Considine getting to leverage a little bit of his comedy uh, chops there. Because it is, I legitimately like laughed. And like with the characters, like you're literally asking me to betroth my 17-year-old daughter to that little thing. Um, it's, re- it's really great. I really like it. And I, I don't want to give Otto Hightower any credit because he's clearly a shit even in these first three episodes. But it is kind of interesting that in the very first episode when they were talking about the secession between Damon and Rhaenyra, he vocally supported Rhaenyra. And then here he's actually supporting Aegon marrying Rhaenyra as well, which, you know, could have prevented the dance from happening if, you know, he didn't also play Alicent against those wishes as well. But... Uh, Viserys is just getting so frustrated by all of this. He came out here to hunt and party and forget about politics. It makes him very Robert-like in this moment. We'll talk after the hunt. Killing things clears my head is what he says to Ned. But Viserys, who has never been great at being king, is forgetting that any public appearances by him are a performance, are politics, and he's once again abdicating his few responsibilities in lieu of throwing a kick-ass bonfire party. 
to be fair, who among us does not love a kick-ass bonfire party? True, Hard true. to resist, hard to resist. And so one of the kind of structural through lines of this episode is that Viserys is just kind of rotating through advisors. Everyone's giving him their different advice. And probably the most canny and effective at it, as we've seen before, is Lionel Strong. His is the plan that actually goes forward in terms of who Rhaenyra gets married to. And I love how when he he says, uh, you know, I advised you that a Valerian match would be wise. And he's like, three years later, my reasons haven't changed. <laughs> like, that's his very dry way of saying, I told you so, without actually saying that to the king. And I like how he, when Viserys says, like, I'm, I'm a hopeless king, I can't even control my kids. And I like that uh, Lionel Strong points out, yeah, that's kind of how it always works. Like, Jaehaerys is widely considered to be the best and most effective Targaryen monarch. And look at the disaster that was his personal life after a while. It says something Ned said in Game of Thrones, that war just didn't prepare him for daughters. These are just different different skill sets, and they don't always line up. And sometimes the demands of, of leadership prevent you from being a good parent, even if you have the best of intentions. And this also this conversation also allows uh, Viserys to throw in a mention of Breakbone, just turning to the audience, Harwin, Breakbone, strong, everyone. Keep that, keep that in mind, because there are, you know, it's a big cast to manage, and sometimes they have to be just unsubtle about it and just drop names so we remember who everyone is. Yeah, they even said uh, one of the strongest knights in the Seven Kingdoms, just so you got a name and you got a quick descriptor so you can immediately put, you know, two and two together. And God, Lionel Strong once again just has incredibly, fantastically sound advice. It makes sense. It's not a weird age gap thing, even for this world. It could mend old wounds. It will bind the naval power of House Valerion back to the crown, which presumably has been wavering during this three-year war in the Stepstones. My man just needs to listen to Lionel Strong. And I also flag that in discussing the betrothal to Rhaenyra, to Sir Laenor, Lord Lionel mentions if Sir Laenor returns from the War on the Stepstones, which perhaps could be another factor in Viserys deciding to send aid there. Aid may mean the survival of Sir Laenor, the one Rhaenyra suitor who didn't cause Viserys to laugh out loud or yell at someone about. Yeah, that's a great connection, because of course a lot of this episode is working hard to establish some kind of connection between the two different storylines going on. And this is one way of, of establishing the stakes, like this very political, diplomatic, peaceful, you know, discussion of power kind of depends on what's going on with the much more blunt, brutal, blood-soaked expression of power the two go together. And there's also the great contrast between the scenes around the bonfire and then the, the outdoor fireside scene, the very intimate scene with Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole. And the fact that they're isolated away from everyone allows Rhaenyra to kind of put the central question going on here very bluntly, the same way uh, Rhaenys did in the previous episode, when Rhaenyra asks, so am I actually in charge or not? Like, if my, fa if my father dies, are they going to allow me to sit the Iron Throne or will they stop me? And I love Kristen Cole's answer. It's such a, it's, it was much smarter than I expected from his character. It was a very careful answer. He said, I, I think they'll have no choice. Which, that could mean a couple things. That could mean they'll have no choice because Viserys declared you his legal heir and they all bent the knee. Or it could mean they'll have no choice if you make the choice for them. If you make them follow you, then they'll have no choice. And so that was, that was, that was a nice little sly bit of dialogue. And then, of course, we get the, the great suspense scene with the boar. Very slow, very patient. And I, I, I love the, the kind of, it's important character moment, but just the comedy beat of it's kind of its last jerking death throes being what provokes Rhaenyra to ultraviolence. And then she starts stabbing it way more than she needs to, just to, to get over the horror of the moment. And bore on the floor, bore on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> it is just a stealth succession episode. Uh, Sir Kristen stabs straight through the boar, and his own sword point comes dangerously close to Rhaenyra's face. Perhaps a mark of the excellent, excellent swordsmanship that Cole possesses, 
or that this whole thing is just a game of inches. Everything is really teetering on a knife's edge and we are just a heartbeat away or maybe a sword thrust two inches deeper that could change the entire course of history for Westeros. And Rhaenyra going apeshit is evocative of quite a lot from the throne show. Her violent stabbing fit is similar to Arya at a couple points, namely her going off on a random fray following the Red Wedding. The look of blood-soaked Rhaenyra and all her blonde glory also evokes Daenerys eating the horse's heart in front of the Dosh Kaleen. It's a trial by blood for her. And blood-soaked Rhaenyra cutting to a flame-engulfed Viserys? Well, not actually engulfed, but he's positioned behind a fire in the smash cut. And it's something about the Targaryen words being fire and blood? Not sure if that means anything. Maybe, maybe, perhaps. I think it's it's great because it's it's literal in both cases, a literal fire and literal blood. But those have very resonant metaphorical meanings as well for these characters, the blood of their family line and the fire in the sense of the, the emotions building up underneath, which all these characters are doing their best to restrain but aren't going to be able to for much longer. And yeah, you were talking about like Emmy submission scenes. This would probably be it for Patty, at least so far, I think. He's uh, just incre- this incredible monologue where his voice gets so sorrowful and, and broken up into sobs. And you get the sense of just the, just the crown being too heavy on his head, despite the all the pomp and circumstance of the council that named him at the opening of the show. He kind of wishes that it hadn't happened and that he was never the king, just so he wouldn't have to make these choices. And this is where he admits that, as Rhaenyra suspected, the main reason he named her heir was nothing really to do with her, but to as he, yeah, protect the realm from Daemon, is how Viserys puts it. And now he has this other option, and he's just he's just not sure what to do. And and so much of the conflict, even beyond that, comes from within himself, from in, like literally inside Viserys' head, because he's trying to live up to these dreams he's had. He's trying to make them come true. And he has this, this uh, wonderful Shakespearean line, I thought Rhaenyra was my way out of the abyss of grief and regret. And now, it, now it's like he can't even be happy with his wife and his new children because constantly in the back of his mind the question is going okay but how do i handle rhaenyra and which one of these kids is going to be my heir he's like he's poisoned his own potential happiness as he whispers at one point what if i was wrong and maybe it's just the fire in the background but it and the the, the sense of the fact that viserys brings up killing his wife for prophecy but it reminds me of the scene at the end of season two of Game of Thrones, the invented scene, but the scene that probably happened off screen in the books with Stannis and Melisandre after the Blackwater, where Stannis just goes, I I killed my brother. As it all comes catch, rushing to catch up to him as he realizes what he did and in the name of something that was just, just gossamer, just gone by the morning. Yeah, the what if I was wrong that he whispered reminded me a little bit of Theon when... Uh, the not a Ramsey was taking him back to uh, the <laughs> Dreadfort. Um, and then he just like, you know... I, I chose and I chose wrong in regards mm-hmm. to his uh, adopted father versus his actual father. But as you say, Patty Considine Viserys is just really compelling here. It's undeniable. And I really love his comment about how what is the power of dragons next to the power of prophecy, um, the latter of which he feels infinitely burdened with. I want to tie this back to Patty's physical performance. That Valyrian steel dagger at his hip the one we're led to believe has the Song of Ice and Fire prophecy written on it in some manner, Viserys is constantly holding onto the dagger hilt as he walks around, almost as if it's a crutch or cane. He's leaning too hard on the prophecy, is one possible interpretation. Uh, My buddy Matty Hugh mentioned that he's gripping legacy too hard. That could be the legacy of Aegon and his prophecy and the great purpose of their house to defeat the others, or it could be the smaller legacy of Jay Harris beginning the longest peace known under the Targaryen kings, a peace that Viserys inherited and has tried to maintain at all costs. 
Yeah, those are just all such great possibilities that tie into his character so well. And it's he can't he can't just give full vent to his thoughts. He can only do it in, in, in private. When he does it in public, it makes him look so bad. So right after showing his emotions, we get the scene where he has to cover them all up again and put on the king's face and take part in that that ritual of violence for all to see. He has to kill the beast. You have to, to kill the boy and let the man be born, as Mace Draymond says. And this is deliberately just a, a blunt, brutal, hard-to-watch scene where Viserys kills the animal that is not even the prophesied animal that was going to be the sign and portent that he's doing the right things. It's just an animal that they found that he's just going to kill. And there's just, there's no prophecy. There's no power. There's no glory to any of it. It's not a thing you would make a tapestry about. It's just those squeals that Rhaenyra mentioned, the squeals that are horribly like a child's. Uh, you, you saying that just makes me think of Cersei, but we have a wolf. Like, oh, we have exactly. a we have something we can kill on hand, so we might as well just kill it anyways. Yep. Which yep. I'm glad George taught me the term mummer's farce, because that's literally the best way to describe everything that plays out in the scene. The stag has already been tied down and surrounded. There is no sport here. Might as well march out a prisoner to be had, because there's no hunting involved for the king. And even so, even so, Viserys is still unable to kill him in one thrust. How many metaphors for this ineffectual rule can they squeeze into these early episodes? And it's an incredibly heartbreaking scene. It's useless, pointless cruelty. There is nothing earned or hard won here, perhaps symbolized by how Viserys gets not a drop of blood on his kingly robes. Compare that to Rhaenyra and Daemon in this episode, who had their major set pieces caked in blood. Someone even compared this scene to the execution of Lord Karstark by King Rob in terms of its tragedy, and it also reminds me of Theon's botched butchery of Sir Roderick in the throne show, too. It's just, what are we even doing here, or have we really thought through everything that's going on? And, of course, the dead stag symbolism calls us back to Bran 1 and the dead stag and direwolf that opens up that chapter. Pray tell, do we know anyone who recently did a podcast about Bran 1 from A Game of Thrones? The- no, probably not. The the Ladies Gone Thesaurus, or whatever the name of that podcast is. No, of course, Girls Gone Canon are into Bran Stark chapters now, which is great. I can't wait to hear more. And yeah, it does it does feel very similar to that. And there's that that John line in that scene with that Bran chapter where he says, Don't look away. And of course he's also talking to the audience there. Like don't don't pretend this isn't happening. The the whole point of this is to watch it and soak it in and realize how this has been underlying everything else. And then you get the great contrast of, of the White Heart actually showing up with Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole. And it's just the total contrast. It's so quiet and peaceful. And there's this, this sense of, of respect and even love between her and the animal. And, and there's no one watching to make sure you do the thing you're supposed to do. It's just the trees. Just Bran watching. <laughs> and it's, it's the kind of thing that is, is so ambiguous on purpose. Because you could say, look, it's the gods have chosen Rhaenyra. Actually, that's what this whole scene was about. Not, not Aegon, but... You know, no, realistically, that is just an animal that she did just meet by chance. And it's only a sign from the gods if she chooses to take it that way. Just like it would have been a sign of Aegon if Viserys had chosen to take it that way. Yeah, it's a nice quiet moment and one I'm going to kind of what if a lot mentally. What if Rhaenyra had killed the white stag or had Kristen do it rather and brought it back to camp? Would that shadow on the wall work for her? Would the lords of Westeros acknowledge that symbol and support her claim thereafter? Or do those symbols work only when they support the patriarchy in Westeros? Would they just brush it aside as, well, it's just an animal after all, who cares? 
But Rhaenyra letting the stag go could also be a reflection of her initial desires as expressed in the premiere. She could bring home a giant white stag to Professor Claim, but does she want that? It's really funny to me. I feel like there's this major through line in this episode of fuck, marry, kill for Rhaenyra as the three <laughs> suitors that are presented to her um, through v- Viserys or, you know, kind of through the high lords of Westeros are Sir Laenor, uh, Aegon II, who again is two years old, and then Lord Jason, who looks at least a decade her senior, if not more. Um, it's just a really funny scenario. But I mean, I think across the board, Laenor just seems like the best of these candidates. By far, he's he's not a total asshole like Jason, and he's older than two, unlike <laughs> Egon. And yeah, there's that, yeah, that that scene with Jason swaggering and being so so blunt and obvious to Rhaenyra, talking about how big the rock is. You know, my my dick is bigger than the wall and the high tower put together. And yeah, like the body language, like you were saying earlier, and the one kind of, uh, I guess I would say, clever on his part move there is to mention a dragon pit to try to seal the deal and to try to entice Rhaenyra, saying like, this is. You know, I could make you uh, a center. I could make you. I can make the Casterly Rock the the cradle of your dragon power, and it would be a all, everything I'm describing would be a tribute to you, not just me. But that he's he's also implying, you know, like, and so my kids would be dragon riders, right? Because <laughs> that's a lot of what houses like the Lannisters or the High Towers want is they want to distribute that power, uh, that 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 dragon riding skill that is so central to Targaryen power. They want in on that. They want a piece of that pie. And then, of course, in terms of future suitors, we also have Harwin, Harwin Strong, Break Bones that I mentioned earlier. There's that one bit when she comes back from from the hunt all covered in blood and he starts giving her the bedroom eyes like, yeah, now I'm taking notice. Because that's, you know, as, as in real life, a lot of the times uh, violent impulses and sexual impulses often go hand in hand. And I think the, the sight of her bloody, that got uh, that started breaking Harwin's bones, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it was a it was a bold move to revert to like 1940s Warner Brother cartoons with like the wolf howls and the heart beating the out from on his, his chest. Head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, the hearts and the eyes as pupils. Um, it, it was so great. I was literally so enraptured by whatever Harwin was doing in this moment that it took a second rewatch to even realize that Laris was sitting right there next to him, like just quietly sitting and watching that drawing any attention to himself, which, again, we don't have a lot with Laris yet, but I just like how he's just kind of there right now. And I can see when this series is all said and done and people come back and do rewatches, they're going to be like, oh, this guy this guy was here from the very beginning. Uh, one other thing that uh, popped into my mind while you were talking about Jason Lannister's proposal was also how he is trying to bring that dragon riding or that dragon power with into House Lannister. So it's part of their own uh, claims to power. And it's Kind of reminding me of Tywin wanting to make sure a Valyrian steel sword belonged to House Lannister. Like, this is a powerful weapon. It, you know, projects a lot of power and legacy with it. We need to have one for our own household so we can, you know, maintain our station amongst the Westerosi hierarchy. So it gave me a little bit of that, which I just kind of got to with your your beautiful point a minute ago. Well, that's what the High Lords want. The Paramount Lords are always trying to keep their bannermen from rising up against them. I mean, that's what... I think a lot of what the Tyrells are trying to do in the main series is because they actually have a lot of factional rivals in the Reach. So if they are part of the royal family, that's a way of of keeping in charge of the Reach. And that's what Jason wants, I think, is to have dragons around so no one can ever challenge Lannister power. And then we get that that extremely grim, cold scene between the High Towers where Otto so often is just made up and shot to look like a corpse. And he's like, it's just he's just so chilly, like the way he calls Allison to your grace, even though they're the only ones in the room. At this point, like you're not keeping up the pretense of power. She's your daughter and you're the only people in the room. 
And it still has to be your grace, because that matters more to Otto than her name does, than her personhood does. And he's got he's got his grand master plan. Well, master plan gives him too much credit at this point. He just says, you know, Egon, we're going to make him king. The path is uncertain, but ah, details, baby, details. We'll, we'll get there, you and I, together. And one thing Otto is correct about is that at this point, Rhaenyra ascending the throne, I think, does mean war. Because Viserys has wavered just enough, and the, the lure of a male heir is just strong enough that even... At this point, even lords who bent the knee to Rhaenyra, yeah, are going to go to war. And I, I, can, I think we can say that even without presentism, even without knowing how the story goes, it's been set up within this universe that that's likely to happen. But the problem is, is that Aegon ascending the throne at this point would also probably mean war, because Rhaenyra was declared the heir, and there would be enough people who just don't like the High Towers, and that would be reason enough to fight for Rhaenyra. So unless someone blinks in this little game of chicken, there doesn't seem to be any way out of war at this point. Yeah, I wonder if Alicent is thinking to crown him is to kill him, because mm-hmm. if she does uh, claim Aegon II is the true heir or make Viserys see that, then, of course, war will come, and we we all know what happens to Aegon II eventually. Um, and we can, once again, a point I mentioned earlier is we can see the hierarchy of House Hightower filtering down here. Even in the opening scenes of this episode, Otto was unsure about Viserys acknowledging Aegon as his heir, but his older brother, Hobart, pushes him to act. Now here, Otto is talking about Aegon as future king as if it's already been written in the history books, an eventuality that cannot be avoided, and he has to press that upon Alicent. And to Alicent's defense, she defends Rhaenyra. She says she will make a good queen. While Otto may be calling her your grace and being all formal, I don't think Alicent is performing here. Well, I think to some extent she's always performing in front of her father, Mm -hmm. but still, I take her at her word here. Yeah, agreed. Allison doesn't he- seem to have any ill will towards Rhaenyra at this point. And even when she says, Otto asks, w- wouldn't you want your son to be king? And Allison says, what mother wouldn't? Uh, you know, I don't know for sure, but it, it feels like she might have been, might be sarcastic there. It wasn't overt in her tone or anything, but uh, I think that was the implication that she's like, yeah, of course not. I see what this is. Like, look at Viserys. And Viserys has had it pretty easy as kings go. And still, look what it's doing to him. Even with all the power, maybe this is not something you would necessarily want for your sons. Viserys, along with all of his other problems, now has the mother of all hangovers <laughs> after his long night of drinking wine. I wonder if the Targs get worse hangovers or better hangovers or if that has anything. I want a whole book just on that, just exploring <laughs> the, the scale of the dragon that burned you, as I think Illyrio says to Tyrion. And Viserys is dealing with this conundrum where he does he wants to respect Rhaenyra's wishes, but he says within the 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 power structure, within the kind of forces that are bringing pressure to bear on them, that her wishes are irrelevant. That's what he says. And look, the problem is, even if that's ultimately true, in terms of Rhaenyra can't stop you from marrying her off or naming Aegon the heir, like, there's no way to sell it like that. And it's, it's even in this society, like, it's it, it doesn't do to have a woman dragged to her altar kicking and screaming. Like, people just don't, like, we saw that with Sansa and Tyrion's wedding. Like, people don't like that. It, it, it's uncomfortable, even if they're fine with it on a, a gendered level. So you do have to find a way of selling this to Rhaenyra. Alicent, I think, puts it perfectly. You, even if you're making the choice for her, you have to let her think it's her choice, or this is never going to be over. And it's I, I, I think the episode does a good job of linking Viserys' indecision about that, about the succession, to his indecision about the question of whether the crown should inter- intervene in the Stepstones. Like, here's this situation you you wish is just going to solve itself, but it's not. 
And, you know, Damon and Corliss are, you know, they're renegade, they're rebels, as everyone keeps calling them. They're they're outside his purview. But they're not if he decides that they are within his purview. The king can make that call in this situation. And Allison cuts to the heart of it by asking the question that no one else is really asking. What does the realm need? Would it be better for Westeros as a whole if we leave the crab feeder in power or would it not? Yeah, don't cancel me, but I feel like I need to uh, ship Alicent Hightower and Lionel Strong solely on the basis for giving sound advice. Mm-hmm. Like, they would be an incredible political one-two punch as a couple. Because um, this is sound advice. Yes, things with Damon and the Valerians are complicated, but ultimately, what is best for the Seven Kingdoms? It's not quite Davos's, you know to sit the throne, you need to save the kingdoms kind of logic, but it is very much that we're seeing... Viserys is so tied up with the question of his, you know, his heir, who's going to inherit the throne after him. And he's actually not really thinking about what's best for the kingdoms. When you think all about the throne and not about the kingdoms, you might lose something in terms of what your actual purpose is when you're sitting on that chair. Agreed. Like I've said before, I think George has taken this broad idea of the Targaryens wanting a united Westeros to fight the others, but then getting lost in the politics of actually doing that. And I think George is working out those ideas uh, through Stannis and Melisandre in the main series, kind of before Daenerys ever gets the chance to come to Westeros or before Jon figures out who he is. Like, that's kind of the characters, and Davos too, that George is working through. And then we get the scene between Viserys and Rhaenyra, the, the tearful confrontation, which is so much like the Duran Ariane conversation in Feast for Crows. And Viserys just has this line that sums up his character where he says, must everything be a battle? And the answer is yes. Yes, it must. That's your job. That's the king. That's politics. Even when you're not overtly at war, everything is still a battle. And Viserys, I think he is being sincere when he says he really wants Rhaenyra to be happy. Like, I don't think that's just a thing he's saying to calm her down or mollify her. I think he believes it. But as Rhaenyra says, he's just assuming he knows what that is. Marriage to a man, that's going to do the trick. And maybe that's not true. More to the point, as she points out, Viserys wasn't following just traditions and customs and protocols when he married her best friend. The smarter move, as Lord Strong told him, was to marry into the Valerians, but Viserys refused to do that. And he admits it. He admits that he followed his heart there, and he admits in a really great dramatic moment to end the scene that he he did waver in the past. That's how he puts it, that he he has considered disinheriting her. And it's heartbreaking because even though he says he's behind her now, and I believe him when he says it, it's too late like everyone saw him waver even if he's more certain now the possibility of Aegon being the king has been introduced into the body politic and it's not going away I really love this interaction between these two we can see clearly that Viserys trusts Rhaenyra wants to support her both as his daughter and as his heir and gives her some leeway to make her own choices he goes so far as to reaffirm that she is indeed his heir but But the problem is he's doing all this privately, behind Uh closed doors. What the High Lords of Westeros saw during the hunt was the two of them fighting, and then Rhaenyra running off. What should have been a public act, the reaffirmation of Rhaenyra's claim, was done in private, and the arguing that should have happened behind closed doors was out in the open for all to see. And just on a separate level, I just love the relationship they're realizing between Viserys and Rhaenyra here because he's a pretty shitty dude and also a pretty shitty father but he also loves her in very real ways maybe it's not politically effective ways but there's a real love there and you can really feel that complicated relationship coming through between the two performances 
Great point that he's, he, what does Krusty say? I said the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud. <laughs> exactly. Like he's done, Viserys has done the wrong things in public and the wrong things in private. In public, he should be embracing Rhaenyra. And if they have problems, which of course they're inevitably going to, they need to hash them out privately before, again, you have to have the pre-meeting. That's that's the most crucial thing in politics. It's not the meeting, it's the pre-meeting where you set the agenda and get everyone on the same team. And so then we we cut back to the Stepstones, and we get this incredible shot, this this slow pullback on a battle in, in motion. And I was watching this the first time, I was like, okay, so we're going to cut in, we're going to see characters that work, but the camera just keeps pulling back on the cannons and the ships and the dragon fire, like suggesting like like it's moot. Like n- none of this is worthy of your individual attention because the point is it's all going wrong. None of this is winning the day. We pull all the way back to the people who are just watching it like we are. And we get a war council among the Valerians, which kind of gives us the excuse to dig a little bit more into their dynamics as secondary characters like the Strongs that we just need to learn more about for later story events to work. And we get the strong sense of a, a frustration of playing second fiddle to the Targaryens, which we see keep coming up with the Valerians, even though they're an ancient, powerful, wealthy house. They're always just considered the Targaryens' sidekicks. And that's especially galling when you're working with someone like Daemon. And we also have the setup that I didn't notice the first time through, but I did on rewatching that Lanor is already introducing the plan of we need to bait them to get them out of the caves. And he he just he mentions that real real quick just before Damon shows up. Yeah. And last week uh, Corliss, you know, pitched himself to Damon is like, we're both second sons here, but now in the middle of battle we see that the Valerians feel like they're second sons to Damon now, who seems to be like that one ball hog who wants the basketball and won't pass to any of his teammates. Um, I'm a little rusty on my NBA, so I don't know who the best current uh, an- a- analogy there. But, you know, sports people, you can fill in the rest. Exactly. No, and it's, it's a great comparison to a star athlete because a, a superstar athlete on a team can be why you win or why you lose, depending on how they manage themselves and their interactions with the rest of the team. And that's what's happening with Damon. He's just not a team player. And even though Lanor has this really good plan for how to use him that we see play out. Uh, Vaymond Valerian that we meet in this episode is also right that Damon is the one putting them in this problem in the first place. It's that the flip sides of the coin we see so often with the Targaryens. And this is, as much as I've been talking about Patty Considine as the MVP of the episode, it's it's also Matt Smith, who is, as you were pointing out online, just gives this incredible silent performance in the back half of this episode where you get the, the this whole scene at the council the delivery of the letter, rowing off to the battle, the entirety of the battle, and he never says a word, and he never has to, because you get entirely what's going on with him from how he, his facial expressions, what the camera does, what the music does, how other characters react, and what a great contrast to the epi- the scenes in Westeros where everyone's talking endlessly without saying anything. And here yeah. we have a character who isn't saying a word, but is getting everything across. Like what? A, that's just a perfect, perfect contrast. Even to the point that while uh, Damon is rowing out to the other side, we get a Viserys like narration overlaid on top. So even here, away from everything, we still have the fucking words coming out of the High Council of Westeros. So it even accentuates the silence around this scene even more so. Even when Viserys isn't there, he's the one talking (laughs) and Damon isn't. And that gets that perfectly expresses how Damon feels. Like how he feels relative to his brother and has presumably for years. And yeah, the camera follows him as he stalks down the hill after getting off his dragon. Reminds me of Euron at the King's Moot in the books when he just waits until every eye is on him, blows the big horn, walks up the hill. And it's just, it's just, Damon has just this physical presence where again, he doesn't need to say anything. He's just this threat. He's just this, this walking black hole of horrible violence and raw need for approval. 
And there's the great, wonderful little quick shot of like Damon gets up there, turns around, faces the crowd, and crosses his hands. And then you see another soldier watching like straighten up, and then he crosses his hands too. Like that's perfect. That's like that's who Damon is. He's this guy that even though he's he does these horrible things and is kind of petty and pathetic a lot of the time, there's just some there's this magnetic quality where people want to be like him and imitate him, even though he is transparently making it up as he goes. <laughs> and Matt Smith does such a great job just flipping out from stillness to rage when Damon absorbs the message from his brother. Uh, perfectly sums up his character. Like he has that that close up where he's he smiles slightly. Because he realizes, okay, Big Brother loves me after all. He's not going to let me die. We're not that far. We haven't we haven't been alienated from each other that much. But then he turns around and just beats the poor fucker who brought him the message just to establish that even though I'm getting help, I'm not weak. I don't need that help. This is my war. This is my crown. So that's that perfectly expresses how Damon can never be happy. Because the thing he wants, the approval and love of his brother is also poisonous, also makes him flip out. So he can he will never, ever be satisfied. Oh, man. I, I want to compare him to Stannis right now just to make our friend Frank mad <laughs> and for no other reason. That is true. That exact thing where what Stannis wants most is the approval of his brothers, but they also drive him crazy. So he's <laughs> never going to be satisfied. But you're right to highlight the fucking swag on Matt Smith in the scene, the way he's just casually getting off the dragon and tossing his helmet on the war table. And he's just leaning up against it. It's like James Dean in a rebel without a cause. It's just it doesn't matter if anyone's here or watching me. I'm just doing my own thing. Let me light up a cigarette and chill out for a bit. (laughs) And Damon wants his brother's attention. We saw that last episode and he wants his affection, but not his aid. He wants to be missed, but he doesn't want the king's investiture into this war, his war. He doesn't want the singers to say that Damon was floundering until King Viserys himself came to save the day, which is surely how the singers would frame it. Uh, uh, Chloe made this comparison that, that Damon is, is like Job in Arrested Development when, when uh, Michael, his brother, offers to put him in charge of the family company. He's like, you want to be in charge? And Job just goes, no. But I want to be asked. <laughs> and that's Damon. Like he doesn't he doesn't really want to do the job. But if he doesn't get the job, that means everyone thinks there's something wrong with him and he can't have that. And he's he's so driven by this idea that he has to win on his own terms that he puts himself at just ridiculous risk by going out to be the, the bait of flesh, the pound of flesh to draw out the crab feeder and all his men drawing all attention to himself once again just to prove himself it's this this need for self-worth that just borders on suicidal yeah speaking of suicidal he basically goes on a suicide run right after he gets that letter from Viserys. um if he didn't want to die here on the step zones he at the very least didn't care if he did or not but he lives almost as if the gods wanted to spite him for yearning for the sweet release of death but he actually is going to emerge from this kind of a new man, or at least a daemon reborn, uh, someone who maybe has purpose now that it seems like people are going to rally to his side at least a little bit. And one thing I really liked about his performance here is how he kind of handed off Dark Sister like it was nothing, kind of like he cavalierly tossed the egg last time. Uh, and before I move on, I just got to point out that the cross guard on Dark Sister has this nice dragon wing flourish that just all that detail work that's going into the show and also went into Thrones before it is just still staggering and still wonderful to see on television. Some absolutely metal detail work there. And yeah, I love that aspect of Damon's character where even though he he makes expert use of the trappings of power, the egg, the sword, 
he he has no real attraction to them because he knows that they're all symbols and that the only real thing is your individual will, which is invisible and intangible unless you put it into action as he does here. And he has, as with the end of the last episode, he kind of has he's met his mirror image with the crab feeder who also is, is, is silent, doesn't say anything, no words to add to the kind of silent movie atmosphere of this part of the episode, and you just see him giving signals to his men just with his eyes or a jerk of his chin. And that lets you know. Again, no dialogue needed to let you know he's a strong leader because his men know him so well, they've done this so many times before that no words need to be said. And then he's always looking up, he's always looking for the dragon, but the dragon's right in front of him. Damon is the dragon for the purposes of, of this part of the scene. Yeah, um, I like how you pointed out how he has these little shoulder twitches or ticks that seem to be leading his men on because it's a bit ambiguous in the visual storytelling. They're not telling you that's how he's commanding the people and he could just be like a weird dude with these weird ticks and twitches. But the way that they're cutting him twitching to men pouring out of the caves, it looks like he's almost giving silent commands to them that um, he has that much control over his people. So it does a really nice job, especially in this moment where we're feeling Damon is completely cut off from all his his men they don't even like him they don't care for him they're letting him die whereas uh Kragus or doesn't have to say a single word but it seems like his men are in lockstep with him yeah he's not the kind of guy who would would literally step on you as he came to save the day or maybe he would be if he had a dragon who knows you know that kind of that kind of power is what makes you think you're above the laws of gods and men and so then yeah we have Damon just this this staggering display of agility and strength and ferocity but really, mostly he wins here because no one would think he'd be stupid enough to try this. No, like Everyone's just taken aback at first. I, I think that's probably why the arrows are a little late and he manages to skip ahead of them is because everyone's watching going, no, he's not really trying to take all of us on, is he? And it's just, I was thinking as I was rewatching the episode, just like after all the talk in this episode about, you know, we even we are not above custom and tradition and all these, like these, the everyone's under surveillance from each other, and all these individuals who can't act and feel constrained. And then here's Damon just bending geopolitics to his will, just this single individual challenging the fates and changing the course of history before Lanor shows up to save his ass. That is, and I'm glad at least at least someone's enjoying themselves on Dragonback because I know it's you know terrifying. I know it's war, but it would be fun to fly through the sky on a dragon. Someone should enjoy it. Yeah, I instantly thought back to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies and mm-hmm. how Tobey Maguire just kind of yahoos and howls as he's swinging because, like, theoretically, it would be fun, especially if you don't have that fear of heights that I think those spider powers grant him. But it is kind of fun just to see a young guy just kind of, hell yeah, Dracarys bitches and just kind of enjoying the time. Um, it's always so somber when we have dragon violence. So it is kind of nice that, you know, he gets to uh, do it with a smile on his face this time, I say. And I even like that we got to see Sea Smoke grab some people off the ground and just kind of launch them into the air. It was very Nazguli from Return of the King, where they would just pick up the soldiers of Minas Tirith and just drop them about 80 levels lower, and we could see their bodies come crashing down. Really, really like that uh, imagery. So Damon gets what he wanted. He gets his total victory without having to rely on Big Brother for support. But I, I love the decision. I think this was a brilliant move to undercut that by not actually showing Damon fight the crab feeder. Like, we don't get an epic duel of the two of them in the caves. We just get Damon walking in after him and then dragging what's left of his body out. And it works so well to just de-emphasize all the martial glory he just showed off. He's going to de-emphasize that and just show us just 
the waste of it, the ends to which he's putting it, and how kind of meaningless it is. Just this is the aftermath where the 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 frightening, terrible crowd feeder is just he's just another body, and he's going to feed the animals too, just like his victims. And what a great contrast it is to Westeros all episode. They're hunting and killing animals, but these Stepstone scenes are here to let you know that those animals are going to strip all of our bones in the end. Yeah, just like that one last shot where you can see all the entrails hanging out of what was left of the crab feeder. They like went the extra mile to make sure it's like, oh yeah, those are definitely his intestines. So please <laughs> right, enjoy. So it's, it's, it's beautiful. And it's, it's, I, was, I was clapping and cheering as I always do for horrible ultraviolence because that's just my thing when it comes to movies and television. But it, it works so well to... Because Damon doesn't look like a badass when he's just dragging half a corpse around and throwing it into the water. You can't possibly go ooh and ah at that like you were when he was running through the field. So that's it's a, a, a great, you know, functional, subtle way of communicating that the glory Damon seizes in a moment like that is short-lived, which is partially why he's never happy because now he's going to wake up tomorrow and chase it again and again. And it's, it's never going to last. Like, that's, you know, <laughs> again, like I said, the overall themes of House of the Dragon, gender and sadness, holding true in this episode. So that, I think, is going to wrap us up for our discussion on episode three, second of his name. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Uh, get, drop a, us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice if you get the chance. It always helps people find us. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastASOIAF or shoot us an email at notacastASOIAF at gmail.com. Uh, you can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacastasoiif where patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. And you can follow me at Porkwenton on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can also find my coverage of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. So next week, we're going to be returning to A Song of Ice and Fire with A Storm of Swords, John 4. I'm going to be putting out uh, one of my Lord of the Rings episodes for patrons. Uh, later this week, covering Book 5, Chapter 7, The Pyre of Denethor, the implosion of the current ruler of Gondor, one of my favorite parts of the story for sure. So, again, head on over to our Patreon if you haven't already, if you want access to those Lord of the Rings monthly episodes. And then, yep, we'll see you back here next week for Episode 4 of House of the Dragon. <laughs>